Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode I invite on a new guest to help me unpack some of the major themes and ideas in a piece of writing. Today we are looking at The Ascent of Man by Jacob Bronowski. Bronowski was a British mathematician, biologist, historian, philosopher, humanitarian, and science popularizer. Although this is technically not a piece of writing, it was actually a documentary series in 1973. Bronowski actually adapted this to a book later, and he actually refers to each episode in The Ascent of Man as an essay. So that's kind of how we're going to refer to it here. And we're in particular today looking at the final episode called The Long Childhood. Today helping me unpack this essay was Shrikant Rongnaker. We actually recorded this episode live on one of his meetups. So that was kind of a cool change of pace. And during our discussion, we got into all kinds of stuff. We talked about what distinguishes humans from the other animals, why the human childhood is so long, uh, why utopias are usually bound to fail, and why traditional cultures seem to value the adult, whereas scientific cultures and modern Western civilization seems to value the child. I had a lot of fun with this discussion. I learned a lot, and I hope you guys do too. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Shrikant on The Ascent of Man. Cool. I'm excited to do this. We've uh, I've been wanting to have you on for a while, and uh, I know you're a busy guy, and uh, I'm glad we were able to kind of, you know, have it on your platform as well. So this is going to be awesome. Um, so I talked to you, I think, two weeks ago, maybe two and a half weeks ago, and was asking kind of what you've been interested in, in what you've been reading, and you were raving about this series and this. Uh, documentary series you said it's the best documentary series ever and you know i've known you for a long time took your word for it and uh i've binge watched the whole the whole 13 episodes in the last two weeks wow and you told me not to you you said uh you said it's gonna be too much and your head's gonna explode but uh i did it anyways i uh i ate from the tree of knowledge (laughs) (laughs) so uh you know i've i've actually kind of been on vacation here i've visiting my family. So I had some time and I've been, you know, visiting with them as well. I've, but you know, watching the documentary series as well. And you're right. It's incredible. Um, I, it was not on my radar before. So this is, uh, Jacob Bronowski, uh, 1973, I believe BBC series. And today we're going to focus on the final episode, which is called the long childhood. And this is where he summarizes a lot of his ideas. I mean, the entire series, he looks at the, um, you know, it's called the ascent of man. So he's, he's really trying to ask the question, why, why man, why humans? And, you know, in that you get what, what distinguishes humans from the other animals. Uh, and then he, you know, specifically looks at science and, you know, the, the, um, some of the major breakthroughs in science, but, Maybe we can just start with this question. So he spends a lot of time talking about man as distinguished from other animals. And the way he he phrases it uh, as only he could, he says, what makes man what he is? And, you know, he's the premise here is that there is something special. There's something unique about man from all the other animals. You know, he gives some of the examples uh, I think in this episode, he says, uh, it's the human creature who rides the horse and not the other way around. Um, you know, there must be something unique about man, evidently, because otherwise the ducks would be lecturing about Lorenz and the rats would be writing papers about B.F. Skinner. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of his funny way of, of saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's kind of our our starting point. And one more thing before we get into it. Um you know, this is a pretty, this is a pretty core question, you know, that a lot of thinkers have spent a lot of time on. And he attacks this from many different ways. And in the first episode, he says, uh, the physical differences are secondary. 
So when we're trying to, we're trying to, you know, and we'll get into it later that it's, it's mostly that, you know, our brain is, is unique. And, um, but I was thinking maybe to start off, we can start with some of these, uh, physical differences, uh, between humans and, and other animals. Cause I think they're definitely worth kind of hitting on. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, so Zach, I'm very excited about, uh, you know, being part of your uh, podcast and this is like the perfect topic because mm-hmm. it is so rich. Um, and I'm delighted that you ended up binge watching all the 13 episodes. <laughs> if you have to do binge watching on something, this is a good thing to binge watch. Yes. Um, all right. Um, so what sets man apart? I think mm-hmm. the best way to look at it is through the evolutionary um, cycle. Okay. Firstly, I want to say that my ability to deal with Bronowski's material is not very good. Okay, because this is very, very deep stuff. Mm. And I think I have some ability, uh, but not, not good. Okay, so I'm going to try my best. Okay, but there is so much. There is so much here. And so it's so deep. Absolutely. So I think the way in which I would start is to yep. look at, you know, the transition of man mm-hmm. from being on all fours to standing upright. Because yep. what standing upright does in one stroke, it increases the visual field instead mm-hmm. of being at this low level in the middle of grass where you can't can hardly see anything you're now way up there and you can see things at a distance okay mm. secondly it frees up your hands yeah so you're totally. able to do things with it and we have mm-hmm. these opposable thumbs which allows for precision combination of the visual impact i mean the first result of that is that brain starts to grow because so much data, so much more data is coming in mm-hmm. and we are able to do so much with it. Yeah. That loop, the control mechanism for that loop, which is the brain starts to grow in order to make the most of it. So that's like, that's a giant step forward. Um, hand, he, he, he talks about hand, my yeah. friend Zoya, uh, you know, calls, I think one of the episodes, I think it's episode second to uh, the ode to the hand. Mm. Um, because what the hand does, I mean, and the way in which he puts the hand is that there is this loop between the hand and the brain. That hand is the cutting edge of the brain. Mm-hmm. He's very much, he sees human beings as, as a living being and he's seeing all of cogitation as a way of living, of transforming the world. Uh, so that that loop is yeah. something that it focuses on. Go ahead. Absolutely. Well, and you know, our our hands are the primary way that we manipulate the world. And you know, Bronowski makes the point that we're not the only species with opposable thumbs, but we are the only species that can link the thumb to the forefinger. And this is a very powerful. Uh, uh, a be- very powerful combination. You know, it, it allows us to use and manipulate tools in certain ways. And, you know, something I think about is like, you can imagine, you can imagine a creature with the intellect of a human that doesn't have any hands and they're very limited, even something like a dolphin. I mean, obviously a dolphin is intelligent. Not, I'm not saying a dolphin is as intelligent as a human, but they have flippers. They're very limited. Um, so, I, I think that's a really big, uh, a really big point. And he he says one of the ways that maybe this has been symbolically represented uh, throughout time has been in the symbol of the Buddha. And there's a kind of the the Buddha. Uh, you know, I know people listening to this can't see, but you know, he's kind of holding up like a Diana Ross stop in the name of love. Uh, <laughs> to use a, <laughs> an example, that, that's but, a great image. <laughs> yeah, but and he's in Bronowski says the Buddha is giving a, the hand, which is the gift of humanity. Um, which I, I thought was really cool. Um, a really cool, uh, you know, kind of symbolic metaphor for so the hand, importance of the hand. So I think upright posture, then hand. Mm-hmm. And then the big thing that he focuses on is foresight. That the animal is focused on the immediate surrounding, the here mm-hmm. and now. And thing that characterizes human beings is 
to operate at a distance and operate at a different time. So you can see it initially just by hunting, you know, looking mm -hmm. at the context of hunting where you're able to see both kind of the, the predator coming at a distance so you can respond to it, plan for it, or you can see a prey at a distance and you can go ahead and coordinate uh, from, from that. But mostly it is about time of being able to see, think about in the future of what would happen and consider mm. the possibilities. So that ability of, you know, imagination of possibilities and foresight of looking across time um, is, is. I really like that. Mm -hmm. I hadn't I hadn't made that connection, but I, I like, you know, because you're kind of saying it's it's our physical ability to to see further and to to see above, um, you know, the horizon. And there's a link there between you know, the parts of our brain that start to develop, which allow us to, you know, plan into the future and that those things are, are correlated. Exactly. And that it's, it's the starting point. Mm. It's the starting point. And then you know, man takes those faculties that were developed in that context and uses his imagination to use them in a way, which is completely on a different orders of magnitude mm. uh, than was possible in the physical context. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe the third one, since we're kind of talking about some of the, um, you know, the benefits of humans starting to walk upright. Um, another one, it wasn't in here, but it, it made me think of it. I know Jared Diamond talks about um, when we started walking upright, it allowed the vocal cords to expand. And, you know, that's another thing and we're just talking about physical differences between humans. Obviously, other animals can make sounds, but our ability to make a wide range of sounds and to manipulate sound, um, you know, is one of the reasons that we're able to communicate uh, at such a high level. So I think vocal cords is another uh, pretty damn good benefit Absolutely. to walking upright. Absolutely. And what vocal cords make possible? Speech and then using speech coordinate actions socially mm. so there is coordination amongst primates mm -hmm. uh, you know chimpanzees can hunt and they can hunt pretty well but what speech does is that it increases both kind of precision and complexity of what can be communicated yeah um so addition of speech as a social tool mm. makes possible um, transmission of whatever discovery individuals make mm -hmm. and making them standard part, standard issue of everybody in the group. And thus you build on that. Uh, so I think, I think speech is, is huge. Yeah, it's huge. And and we'll kind of probably get into um, some of the other benefits, you know, uh, speech and language are just part of our ability to communicate ideas and knowledge that has been gained through generation to generation and pass it down to the children. Um, I want to hit but, one last point yeah, yeah, before, before we, we move, move on, on. And yeah. that's tools. Oh, you know, tools. Yeah. Tool making, because tool making is like extension of the hand. I always think of it as mm. extension of the hand. So you are using your hand to create something outside of yourself that you are going to now use. You're going to develop procedures for using it. And that is again passed as part of the culture to leverage the ability of the group as a mm. whole as well as individuals. So tool making, I think, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who called man tool making animals. I think that is profoundly true. Yeah. I like that as well. And tool making as opposed to tool using, because again, that's another one of the, um, you know, I think it was uh, Jane Goodall who kind of busted the myth that humans are the only animals to use tools, but um, you know, we have like chimpanzees will use like a stick to fish out, um, termites and like a log or something but they're not really they're not really creating tools they're not really crafting tools maybe right. in, in the way that that humans do um 
Well, cool. So maybe we can move on to talking about the long childhood. Wonderful. So this is the core of what this episode is about. Um, so, all right. He says humans are neotenous. And this was a new word for me. He says neotenous means we come from the womb still as embryos. And this is a huge idea. I mean, he, he makes the idea that, you know, a lot of other species of animals, when they come out of the womb, they're more or less developed. They're more or less where they're going to be. I mean, a snake from day one is self-sufficient. Their mother, you know, I don't even think he even sees them. They're just like on their own, ready to go. Other animals, you know, maybe take a couple of months of, of uh, parental investment, you know, some other animals, a couple of years. And then you look at humans and, you know, humans, probably the first 13, 14 years of life, uh, they need adults to not die. And, you know, some people even say uh, nowadays, maybe uh, somebody needs an adult until they're in their 50s or something. But um, so the question is why? This is obviously a huge, it's a huge kind of parental investment. It's a liability. And um, so, yeah, maybe we can use that as our jumping off point. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's fantastic. It's, it's a major investment and there has to be a reason. Yeah. Why? Right. Uh, that is worth it. Um, and essentially, what happens is that human beings are born with only half their brain formed, mm. and rest of the you know half of the brain development takes place outside while interacting with other human beings and the surroundings. So that plasticity of adaptability gets built in. So, for example. As you're pointing out, snake, when it is born, it is carbon copy of its parents. It's able to do everything that the parent does. Yeah. And that's fantastic because there is no, it is ready to go right off the bat. Yeah. But that means, and, and it means that if the environment is the same, that snake's ability is going to be fantastic. It's the very effective way. But if the environment is different, then it's not going to be able to adapt to that. So it's right. hard-coded. Whereas the child learns from the parents, the culture. Mm. So it uh, while the brain is forming, so it level it adds a level of plasticity to human beings um, on a tremendous scale. And it's a scale. So this is essentially the mammalian path where the childhood of a more advanced mammal is longer in proportion yeah. to their, their, their lifespan. Yeah. Well, and just, yeah, you mentioned plasticity. I mean, that's, that's the huge, I think that's the big point that he brings up throughout this whole episode is, you know, it's our ability to adapt to the environment, adapt to the culture and to even change the culture to, fit our needs he makes a point i don't know if it's in this episode or another one that uh basically like other animals adapt to fit their environment humans change our environment to fit us so it's you know it's also i think our ability to adapt also allows us to do that that's a great point. And we should have made that point, you know, when you say, what is it that is unique about human beings? Mm. If you want to really summarize what is you about unique about human beings is that we transform our environment. Yeah. We, instead of um, adapting to the environment, we are able to transform the environment. Um, and that's really the hallmark of, of human beings. Yeah. And when me one more point, um, while we're kind of talking about the plasticity, um, he, at one point in the, the documentary, he, he pulls a, uh, a skull from, a I can never pronounce Othropolithecus. I think I'm butchering that, but he, he pulls up the skull, you know, from one of our ancient, ancient ancestors. And he says, what makes this, uh, what makes their brain different from ours? And he says, you know, if we think about the brain as a computer, it's not just that 
our brains are a more advanced computer than their brain. Like he, he's like, yes, it, you know, it is, you know, it, it is a more kind of advanced computer, but it's a different kind of machine. And maybe a computer is not a good analogy. Uh, he says, quote, if the brain were a computer, then it would be carrying out a pre-wired set of actions in an inflexible sequence. And then he says, if we are any kind of machine, then we are a learning machine. So, yeah, I, I think that's a that's a big point. Um, cool. And cool. So we talked a little bit about plasticity. I um, want to hit and, one more oh, yeah, point about the long childhood. Yeah. Children are characterized by curiosity mm. of openness to the world, of interest in the world, of fascination with the world. And what he's pointing out is that that capacity in human beings is the heart of who we are mm. asking questions and relentlessly asking questions, um, open-ended questions. I mean, it's very different from the snake example that we're talking about, where it's all about, there is no curiosity there at all. There is just, so, so uh, curiosity being kind of the hallmark of children and curiosity being hallmark of man as such. Yeah. And it's also maybe the hallmark of science. Yes. Because science, and, and he kind of alludes to this point that science and children are similar. Mm-hmm. And that a child is constantly asking why. A child is constantly questioning. And... um. You know, he he also makes the point, uh, let's see if I can pull up the exact quote. He says, our scientific civilization adores above all else the symbol of the child. And he gives some examples of, uh, he says, ever since the Renaissance, I should add. And he gives the example of the Christ child painted by Raphael and the, you know, the children, uh, Gauss and uh, Dickens portray. So, you know, in our kind of 21st century scientific civilization um he i guess he sees that he sees the emphasis that our civilization he sees our excuse me he sees our civilization um valuing the child um and maybe even above the adult which i i think that's it's an it's an interesting point it has a lot of implications you know maybe why we uh value youth so much in our culture and day and age where maybe some traditional cultures and we'll get into a little bit he talks about static cultures we'll get into that in a little later um but a lot of these more traditional cultures there's a lot more kind of respect and reverence for the elders and the tradition that we maybe lack at least i don't know i i think it's a safe thing to say that um so I don't know. I, I guess I had never made that connection in that, um, you know, it is the same curiosity and questioning and uh, reverence for the child that maybe distinguishes our culture from from others. No, I, absolutely. Absolutely. And he makes that point when he starts to compare, mm. um, you know, look at these traditional cultures. Yeah. Um, you know, with, with Easter Island. Yeah. Maybe that's a good transition to yes. get into um, talking about static cultures. So, so yeah. So he says, you know, though our culture values the child, uh, he says that's, he says that's not the only way that cultures t- tend to tend to be. Says we we have examples of what he calls static cultures. So um, let's see. He says for most of history, children have been asked simply to conform to the image of the adult, and uh, he sees static cultures as being um, like he says a lot of times nomadic cultures are static cultures, and and I think he says it's because they they basically don't have time for innovation. They're always on the run. They're always on the move. And what is 
most effective is for the children to emulate the adults. And, you know, he says, like, in these cultures, you even look at the little kids and they're basically just trying to emulate their parents and become them. And the culture uh, kind of praises that. And so, that, I mean, that was kind of the point I was making before. Maybe that's why in those cultures, there's such kind of reverence and respect for the elders. Um, it is interesting. You know, he, he starts by showing us the statues of Easter Island, hmm. these expressionless faces. And the child, this alive face, is trying to emulate to become that. Mm. So it's it's actually a, uh, it's like it's a reversal of m- mammalian sequence of instead of being kind of having longer and longer childhood, you're holding you're holding up for the child the ideal of being like a little snake. You know, no, 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 you're not a mammal. Please be a snake. You know, be exact carbon copy of your parents. Mm. So this entire mammalian, it's like erasing that part of, yeah. of evolution and going back to a much more primitive uh, way of operation. Yeah. Well, and he says, when you look at some of these, uh, a lot of these thinkers who draw up these utopias, you get people like Plato and his Republic and Sir Thomas More, like the utopias that they imagine are always static cultures. You know, they kind of imagine, okay, if I create this, you know, amazing uh, society that it can just stay static and be the same and it will always work for humans. And I think what Bernowski's saying is that's, that's like a, deadly flaw to make it is because you're not taking into account the uh, you know what man is and man is plastic as we as you said earlier and and there's there's always going to be an element of change so i think what he's saying is anytime we get these uh you know kind of dogmatic ideas about this is the way it will be for all time it's bound to fail and, you know, he brought up Easter Island. He says, we look at these statues now and they look crude and, you know, archaic to our eyes. And, you know, we kind of look back, like, how could they have thought that this would, you know, be the, the um, you know, ideal that humans should live up to until the end of time? Because if we know one thing about humans is that they're, they're always changing. Right. I mean, this idea of static, I, mean, I want to bring the parallels between three things. So all these utopias, which people think are like the height of intellectualism, mm. whether it is Plato, whether it is uh, Thomas More, this whole bunch of other ones, uh, including the concept of heaven, for example, which is kind of static. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, that is similar to traditional cultures, like a nomad. And mm. that is similar to a snake. Or to, to basically do a very primitive way of being. Mm-hmm. as And that is being held as an ideal in very sophisticated. They, I mean, snakes is actual biology. The kind of nomadic cultures is that in a human, but fairly, you know, in the oral culture. And then you have things like Plato at a, in a written culture mm-hmm. using all these words, but trying to do the same thing, trying to go back. To, to that. And the contrast to that is the child, is the active process of concept of growth, concept of continuously facing challenges and overcoming the challenges and going to the next level and facing more challenges as mm. a result of that, which is a very different mindset. So I see it as being static yeah versus dynamic you know static like almost like a stone mm-hmm. versus this living system which is dynamic with a feedback continuous feedback where no matter what you come up with your in your head or with your hands you do not regard them as the final but only as a stepping stone 
to go to the next level. Yeah, no, I love that. Well, and he gives, you know, he gives plenty of examples of uh, static cultures. And I should, should mention, he doesn't just say that these nomadic cultures tend to be static. He also gives the example of like Egypt and Assyria and China and uh, Europe in the Middle Ages. So he says, you know, even like Western civilization, we've, there have been instances where the, you know, at some point the, the culture kind of became static. And I think what he's implying there is that's why these, uh, you know, that's why they've failed. And, you know, that's why they've, uh, we've had, you know, the end of these cultures. And one other, th- other thing I was thinking, maybe the more dynamic culture, you know, the culture who is open to changing and adapting. I don't know, would you say something like, uh, like the constitution and the amendments are something that's more in alignment with that, where it's at least in theory, it's, it's basically saying we know that things are going to continue to change. And so we need to build into the system something that allows for that to happen. Absolutely. Uh, Zach, this is a fantastic, uh, fantastic point. Mm. Um, And I don't think I get it well. Okay. Because it's a very deep point. Because on one hand, it is really a point of epistemology. This is the Mm -hmm. heart of science. Where you're yeah. focused on asking questions. A scientist wants to ask questions. Once they have figured something out, they will start asking new questions. So mm. there is always this, it's the epistemology of saying that I'm not going to just hold on to the answers. Mm. That I'm going to keep asking questions. So that's one part of it, that there is a sense of growth to it. So first, let's look at it just at the epistemological level. Yeah. Okay, and then let's look at it at kind of political economic level. Okay, again, I my my knowledge is very very poor here. Okay, so I'm just <laughs> I'm just ad libbing here. Okay, so what happens? So one part of science. Okay, the second part of it is the objectiveness of it. That a scientist will write things down. This is what I think. This is why I think it, and mm. other people can look at it and critique it. And that is considered good. And if the scientists found that they were wrong, they will say, thank you. Thank you for correcting it. So there is, this is what royal society is about. And this is like, this is like the enlightenment culture. Okay. Mm. In terms of the technology, it's the print technology, which makes it at a completely different level of scale. So people can independently look at things and then talk to each other, make arguments, learn from each other, and that is considered good. Mm. Contrast that to Egypt, where all the knowledge is hierarchical. There is a priest king at the top who controls Mm -hmm. both kind of the spiritual dimension and the physical dimension. Right. So there is an element of freedom of thought that is there. So at the epistemological level, it's something very different. And you can see it happening in, in uh, enlightenment. You can mm-hmm. see the harbingers of it in Renaissance of people doing it at the, at the artistic level. And then you see the fullest uh, explication of it in conceptual explicit terms in, in uh, enlightenment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you're like, you're making these transitions super easy for me because that really transitions into, you know, the next thing we're going to talk about was democracy of the intellect. And, you know, you made the point, um, you know, in some of these traditional cultures or, you know, even in places like Egypt or, you know, in the Middle Ages where only a handful of people had access to the information and there was a certain kind of uh, hierarchy. And, he calls this uh, a minority culture. He says a minority culture is where only a tiny fraction of all the talent that mankind produces is actually used. Uh, learns to read, learns to write, learns another language. And one of the things uh, he points to that changed this 
uh, at least in um, in Europe, was the printing press. And this, of course, allowed uh, access to, you know, uh, a lot more people. And there was no longer there were no longer these uh, kind of gatekeepers of knowledge and information. Whereas, you know, before maybe you had to be a monk if you wanted to have access to the books or have access to the library. You know, now we have uh, the printing press, which makes all this information a lot more available, um, leading to, you know, the democracy of the intellect. And, um, you know, and we could, you know, this documentary was made before the internet, but we could, you know, carry that forward and say the internet just, uh, you know, it took that to the next level as far as making information available. Absolutely. And I want to um, pick up on what you started this Mm. segment with about the, uh, the constitution. Um, So let's look at it at a political level. Um, What is different with, in the conception of individuals in the declaration of independence as compared to Egypt? Egypt says that it's the top-down structure and individual is a little cog in this Mm. entire machine. Whereas Jefferson starts by saying that the prime movers are these individuals and what is sacred is their own pursuit of their life, Mm. liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And in order to protect that, you create governments. So the direction is exactly opposite. Yeah. So it is the freedom of action, freedom of exploration, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom to shape your own life and pursue your own happiness. That at an at a individual level. And so it's at all these different particles, all these many particles. Mm. That's what the goal is. Okay, so let's just look at the goal. That is dramatically different from that Easter Island. We're saying mm-hmm. goal is to become that. Yeah. You know, of a, a limited thing. And that's if you aspire and if you do very well, you will become that. And that is the ceiling. Whereas this is like this is like these are like children trying to grow. Right. So it is at at a at the kind of a metaphysical level, it's a different conception. Of, of man and society. No, that's that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, um, if there's, is there anything else you wanted to touch on in as far yes, as democracy? Yes, yes. Then it's like, yes. oh, please, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to, I want to connect the point about the democracy. Mm-hmm. So just like in science, okay, and this is actually far more. You can easily, far easily see this in the constitution. So, so okay, you have these individual people, right? Lots of individual people. So how do you build a structure that allows people to actually flourish? Mm. And the idea of founding fathers is that you have this system of checks and balances where there are many, many parts that balance each other. And you have to negotiate. You have to make compromises for things to happen. It is like right. um, there is an amazing book that I've just come come across. It's called Constitution of Knowledge. I forget the name of the author. Um, If somebody can put it in the chat, that will be great. Um, What he says is that the way in which founding fathers structured the constitution and the way in which the democracy of intellect works or kind of the scientific community or royal society works is similar, where Everybody can say their piece or is free to say their piece. There is a freedom of expression. And there are these systems that are built in order to evaluate things and things that pass certain evaluations, certain kind of commonality, go to the next level and become more influential. So there is a negotiation going on. Instead of ideas going top down, they kind of bubble up bottom up kind of would like a meritocracy be the right word or 
Yes, but it's it's dynamic in the sense mm-hmm. that it is negotiated all the time. Okay. And there are areas where somebody is going to be better, where they they flourish more, they they do things more, they control things more. And if they start failing, there is there are other forces. So it's a dynamic system of checks and balances, which keep correcting things, just like it does in scientific papers, like mm-hmm. scientific community, yeah. the same thing happening at, at a political level. Yeah, no, and I, I love that whole, the the connection of kind of uh, science, you know, the way that science works, uh, kind of mapping that onto, um, you know, how a government should, should essentially work. Um, I think that's a really big, big idea. And that, like... Yeah, sci- I mean, a, a a good scientist is always willing to want to hear when they're wrong. <laughs> they're one, they're one, you know, like you said, it's it's peer reviewed. They're constantly being uh, critiqued, and you know, having their experiments replicated, and having that feedback happening. Um, so yeah, and, and I think that's maybe you know one of the points he's making about uh, government and. Uh, that when that doesn't happen, that's when uh, culture tends to stagnate and turn into dogma, turn into, you know, and he talks about, uh, in the, I think, two episodes before this, um, you know, a lot of what happened with, in World War II and the concentration camps. I think he, he made some point there that, like, uh, he's at the very end, he's like in Auschwitz, and he's saying, this is what happens when we claim to have absolute knowledge and absolute certainty. Um, so yeah, I mean, he makes the po- the point pretty pretty uh, profoundly there. Excellent, cool, cool. You cool to to move on to talking about social solitary? Yes. All right, beautiful. So this is actually a point that he makes at the very beginning of this uh, episode or essay. He actually refers to these as essays, uh, which I loved. Um, so at the beginning of this this essay, he uh, he says justice is a universal of all cultures. Um, He says, justice is part of the biological equipment of man. And then he says, justice is a tightrope man walks between his desire to fulfill his wishes and his acknowledgement of social responsibility. So, and then he says, um, an animal is either social or solitary. Man is alone in being a social solitary in that we have a responsibility and a commitment to the group and a need for, um, you know, we're social animals and, you know, we do not do well uh, completely isolated. But at the same time, we have, uh, we have these individual desires. We have, um, you know, these individual drives to, uh, make ourselves great. And he, he tends to have a bit of like a kind of great man theory in that like history and innovations have come about by, you know, individuals, you know, trying to better themselves and, uh, perfect their craft. So, so that's kind of the, the collide. And, And again, this quote, uh, justice is a tightrope man walks between his desire to fill, fulfill his wishes and his acknowledgement of social responsibilities. And um, this also kind of made me think, I, I recently read Civilization and Its Discontents, and that, that's a kind of big point that Freud has as well, that we have these, you know, we have these individual desires, but then we also have to coexist and, you know, live in a, in a community and, you know, at least Freud, Freud would say, this is what ca- causes a lot of our neurosis you know, I want to, you know, I want to kill my neighbor. I want to have sex with that person, but it's not socially, you know, it, it doesn't conform to the, um, you know, my social responsibility. Um, but anyway, so I know that's a, that's a lot there, but what were your thoughts about, uh, social solitary? Yeah. The way, way in which I, I understand it is that we are, his point is that we are social solitary. So we are social in a very deep way and we are solitary in a very deep way. 
And yeah. both those are core parts of who we are. We are mm-hmm. social in the sense that if you look at your life, how much do you owe to other people? People's work, um, mm-hmm. people in the past, people in the present, it is humongous. When we're yeah. talking in language, language is all you know, a social creation over mm. a period of time. So you, you take in everything that the society has produced mm. and our life depends on it. Yet all new things are created by an individual having a vision, imagining something, having the courage and the confidence to work it all out and to create something. So all new things that are being created, are being created, are being motivated by an individual, are created by an individual. So in that sense, the all these social good, you know, goods that we're talking about are the result of individual creation. Mm. And moment a society which doesn't respect that is going to become stagnant and start to die. Mm. So at the same time, an individual by themselves, if they were trying to cut itself, cut themselves off from the society, their ability to produce goes down dramatically. Right. So, so it is social and it is individual. And for example, the, the, again, going back to the founding fathers, e pluribus unum, the one in many. That is the idea. Mm-hmm. The, the individuals are the many. Society is the one and you have to structure things so that the many can flourish in a way and the one has the stability that provides stability for all these individual actions from many to produce, um, not hurt each other and provide means of bouncing off one another in order to produce much more value than what individuals themselves can produce. So I think one in many captures the heart of this point of social solitary. Mm, That was great. That was great. And I liked what you were saying because you were kind of talking a little bit about language and, um, you know, if, if, give an example of a you know a human born on a desert island they're not taught anything they're not around anybody they're basically having to figure out everything from scratch you know you and i you know we have the ability to read the ability to communicate and you know this gift of language which allows us to gather all of the insights from our ancestors for the last couple thousands of years and we're able to then you know stand on the shoulders of giants which I think that's a really big point and you were talking about earlier. Uh, again, another, um, you know, kind of difference between uh, humans and, you know, other animals is our ability to do that. And that, you know, the snake is starting from ground zero each, you know, each generation. Whereas humans, you know, with our ability to communicate with our gift of language, we're able to pass on all of that knowledge and wisdom and that's, you know, I think that's what he calls progress. Absolutely. I mean, uh, people like, um, you know, Merlin Donald do a very good job of talking mm-hmm. about this point. You know, they talk about, um, they, they call it, uh, he calls it external memory. Okay. So whether it is writing or whether it is furniture or whether it is cities that you build is external memory. It is, mm. and what external memory it is a product of individual consciousness working to shape something, but is accessible and manipulable and useful to others. So it's the the middle term through which consciousnesses can interact with one another, whether through a book or a road. So is external, just to make sure I'm understanding correctly, is this similar to like, um, you know, I don't have to understand how to, I don't know, 
code or something like that, as long as I know that these other people in my society no it is it is far, no. it is far more um far more down to earth concept mm. um when you look at a paper when you're writing on the paper okay when you're writing with your pen yeah that is external memory so what was there in your head is now on paper okay okay and what that does and the, the biggest innovation i i think the biggest invention which moved everything forward is writing mm um because what it does is it ex- externalizes thought yeah you are able to organize it externally and other people are able to see it and it's it's scaling of it both internally with a feedback loop with your own consciousness added with the feedback loop with other consciousnesses which are um not necessarily present right there um scales things up dramatically well yeah and it's uh, i think he says something i was trying to find the exact quote but it's it's something like we're able to pull things and ideas apart and then put them back together again which i know to get a little meta which kind of what we did to prepare for this mm-hmm. discussion was we we you know both you and i watched the the episode a few times and then kind of hashed out all the ideas and then we kind of put them all on a big piece of paper and then kind of said okay well this belongs over here this belongs over here and you know that's that kind of sounds to me that's that kind of external exactly yeah, exactly okay. uh exactly so it's it's the map i don't know whether you have it or not but you have the paper you can, you can <laughs> i think i do yeah the 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 paper um so that, that's that's okay that, that is this You're conversation right. you know <laughs> how how we put it put it all together and what we did was that we it's kind of initially getting individual kind of key concepts on paper first and seeing mm-hmm. the connections between them um and both of us doing it together so we yeah. can say oh this needs to be added to it or this organization this needs to be grouped together uh, mm-hmm. and then figuring out what is the proper order of it all of it being done on paper uh firstly for just if i was doing it myself i would need to do that but yeah. doing this together with you enables you know both our thought processes both our context mm. uh to be brought to bear on on the same thing well and i think also what what i find interesting about it is for i think bernowski or at least the person editing the documentary the order in which they presented the information uh made the most sense or that that kind of grouping of it but for me um when i watched it the first time i was like man he's all over the place like what the heck's going on and i kind of needed to like i said take out all the ideas and then kind of reorganize them in in a structure that made sense to me and you know i i know you did the same thing and part of what our back and forth was was finding kind of a way to talk about the material that would you know make sense to both of us yes exactly it's kind of like <laughs> doing a map doing yeah. a map of the territory uh uh-huh. in an abstracted way and then kind of comparing the maps and bringing them together as mm. a way of navigating through through the territory yeah yeah absolutely well cool maybe we can move on to the final part of the map yes um So he talks about a little bit about um his an ideal for the individual or kind of uh what each of us as an individual should be striving for. And you kind of hinted on it earlier. Uh part of what he sees us having a moral responsibility towards is seeking knowledge and the kind of questioning and you know i think he harps on that a lot throughout this series is that you know the moment we stop questioning like and just kind of revert back to dogma or old ideas um you know that's when the the culture will become stagnant and that's when you know basically the the culture will end so i think that's one of the one of the big ideas and the other one is he tells a story at the, at the very end about uh 
while shooting this episode, a cameraman went up in a plane to film and the plane actually crashed. And he was having a conversation with the person who was going to, you know, be the next cameraman and get on the next plane to go up. And he's kind of saying like, you know, are you nervous or are you, are you considering not doing it? And this guy said, I am scared, but it's my job and I have to do it anyways. So I think he makes a point there too, that we all have kind of a personal responsibility or, you know, moral obligation to, to our craft and to kind of perfecting our craft as an individual. And that's, I think what he sees leading to progress, kind of like we talked about earlier, it's individuals, you know, trying to get a little bit better, a little bit better at the thing that they're doing, um, that, you know, moves society forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like his phrase, you know, personal commitment to one's own skill Mm. is the cause of ascent of man. So individuals saying, you know, that I'm committed to my own skill. Another way in which he expresses it is in terms of taking responsibility for your own integrity. Mm. Um, You know, he's talking, you know, this theme appears again and again, you know, it's, it's basically your own kind of judgment Mm. of saying, this is what is right. This is what is good and taking full responsibility for it and forging a path. Uh, Typically, whether it is a scientist or artist, um, you know, they are out there on the limb on their own. And they have to have that confidence in their own skill, in their own being, in their own integrity, even when people around them don't seem to get it or are actively hostile Mm. um, to it. That is what moves us forward. Yeah. And it's, it's a, a complicated thing. I, I, I thought about, um, you know, a few podcasts ago, somehow we were, we got into talking about um, AI and artificial intelligence and the people working on AI. And, we were talking about how, you know, even if somehow we were to know that creating AI would would be a fatal thing to do, and I still don't think there would be any stopping stopping it. Because as we've talked about earlier, like the the nature of humans is change and the nature is to constantly better themselves. So I think some of it is maybe we're not we have such a commitment to perfecting our craft that uh, I don't want to say it doesn't matter what the goal is, but maybe the goal itself is the, maybe the goal itself is getting better as opposed to the goal is to create this thing to help humanity or or in whatnot. Yeah. I I don't know. Uh, I mean, he has a different view. Uh, in that last episode, what he's saying is that if you're a scientist, if you're an engineer, you should try to take responsibility for everything. Mm. You should try to understand the consequences of what you're doing. Uh, you're seeing, you're trying to, because uh, if you are one step ahead of everybody else in being able to understand something and doing, you know, and being able to do something technologically, then you should take the responsibility of saying, is this a good thing? What does it do to human beings? Mm. Under what conditions we can protect and thrive uh, at the same time? Um, So that is what he's talking about of kind of taking, taking responsibility. Okay, great. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it was a little bit, I had it, kind of conceptualized a little bit differently. Um, well, that was kind of the end of my notes. Were there any 
kind of things that we maybe missed or jumped over? I'm no, sure. I think, I think we did a good job of taking <laughs> okay. notes. So we had a map and we've gone through the map. <laughs> awesome. Well, cool. If, if you're happy, I'm happy. Yes. I'm very happy. Beautiful. Um, well, let's call it there. I'm, I'm, yeah, thanks so much for for coming on. We've kind of been chatting about these ideas for the last week or so. We were, you know, at a mutual friend's wedding and trying to be respectful not to uh, be talking about Brzezinski when the bride was coming down the aisle. <laughs> <laughs> but we finally got a chance to to let loose and um, explore some of these ideas. So wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, thank you, Zach. This was uh, this is a great delight. Uh, I always like speaking to you. So this is this is a great. Uh, great chance to speak to you about something that I'm really, really uh, interested in. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or scroll down and write a review or give us a rating. I know that takes a little bit of effort, but it really helps the podcast grow. So thanks so much for doing that in advance. Uh, If you'd like to read along with us, please visit unpackingideas.com forward slash podcast where I post links to the articles and essays that we'll be discussing on future podcast episodes. And finally, if you would like to hear more from Shrikant or get in touch with him, check out his meetup at, uh, it is called 52 Living Ideas. And he hosts uh, meetups that are available online via Zoom uh, all around the world, but in particular in the New York City area. So if you're in the New York area, just type in 52 Living Ideas, you will see him. And you can also check out his videos on YouTube at 52 Living Ideas. All right, guys, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.